Hello, hello, and welcome to Art Pop Talk. I'm Gianna. And I'm Bianca. Hey guys, how's it going? It is going. Yeah? Have you had a good week, Gianna? It's been a crazy week per usual. I am officially moving back to Edmond, so moving all of my stuff out of Stillwater this week. You know, moving is always just... I mean, I'm a pro at this point. I've moved, like, every single freaking year of college, yeah, basically. But, right. um, I, yeah, I just hate moving. <laughs> yeah. I I don't know that I mind moving. I kind of like unpacking. Yeah. Well, I love, like, the decoration part. <laughs> but I will say I am looking to downsize as well, as I think a lot of us graduates are. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's just, like, a lot of crap I've accumulated <laughs> over the course of my college days so it's time to part ways with you know some stuff yeah I was helping my best friend pack yesterday as well she's also leaving Stillwater and I went over to her house and we didn't even pack we just got rid of a lot of the stuff that she has accumulated I feel like as college students though you kind of you take what you're given because you can't always like afford to buy things that you really want so whenever you have the opportunity to take something and kind of decorate your home with it or make your space more engaging or more fun or your space you kind of grab at that opportunity so I feel like Alyssa and I had a lot of stuff to get rid of but it was good yeah and I feel that way about my furniture like my big stuff because Mm -hmm. actually a lot of my like handy down furniture is from you and (laughs) it's but it's nice stuff like like my couch, it's a great couch, but mm. it's not worth picking up and moving and putting in storage at that point. Like, who knows where I'll end up in right. a year or so, six months. Like, you know, I have no clue at this point. Like, right. the world is my terrifying oyster at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm just picturing like a really scary oyster, like coming at me, like, yeah. your future is undetermined. <laughs> Um, but yeah, and like I have that really nice vanity dresser mm-hmm. thing with that mirror that you got, what, for like 10 bucks at a flea market? Yeah, in Santa Fe. Yeah. I got it when I was interning in Santa Fe, and it was like 10 bucks, and I knew I needed it, so I just drove it back up with me. And it's so nice. I really mm-hmm. like it, but it is a heavy piece of furniture. Right. And again, I just don't want to like bother putting in storage and I know that during these times someone else could probably use it so Mm -hmm. needless to say I'm I'm getting rid of a bunch of stuff on you know Monday sold a lot of stuff on the old Facebook market Mm -hmm. which is a really wonderful yeah handy tool so no I used Facebook marketplace a lot whenever I moved to PA Mm -hmm. which was really really helpful so well and it's funny because when you moved to PA we were talking about how it's weird you actually like buying a nice new couch and not feeling like you have to go to like Goodwill or like a flea market to Mm -hmm. find a couch which is like those things are fun and like Mm -hmm. we're so used to doing that through our college days but now it's like oh it's okay you can actually start investing and buying new stuff yourself that that's what you want. Right. I just paid off my really cute pink couch you last did? month. Yes, I did. And I can't even sit on it. I'm, <laughs> I'm sad because it's really cute. And it's really is, it's the only thing for my apartment that I really bought new. I went around to a lot of different markets and antique shops and marketplace and bought a lot of nice used things. But I did really kind of selfishly want a couch that was mine and it was a an investment like you said so I paid it off but I'm kind of sad that I'm not there sitting on it because it's cute but it is literally so cute I love how we're talking about like ooh, I'm an adult I buy my adult furniture and the first thing you buy was like this bright pink couch <laughs> but it, it is gorgeous but thank you it it it's not even selfish. Like, I don't even want you to feel that way. But it, it's just breaking that norm. It's like yeah. when you go from being in college and being so broke and feeling, like, guilty about buying, like, anything. Like, oh, I bought new nail polish. Like, no. Like, I know. You know. Actually, I did buy new nail polish the other day, <laughs> and I felt bad about it. I was like, I already have some nail polish, but I don't have this color. That's so funny. It's well, okay. I don't want you to feel guilty. You deserve it. Thank you. But... <laughs> Yeah. 
So, another week. This is going to be week four. Yay! Episode four. I know, I'm really excited. I think we have a lot of really exciting things planned. We do. I feel so, like, good and, like, sneaky a little bit. (laughs) And scared. And scared. (laughs) No, it's really exciting. I am just so appreciative of all the kind of initial support and, for lack of a better word, recognition that we're getting from the community Mm -hmm. just with the three episodes that we had put out prior to this one. So yeah, it's, it's go time for us. I know. I'm super pumped. A lot of announcements coming in the coming weeks and some partnerships, which we're really excited about. And Gianna and I ordered some Art Pop Talk stickers So if anyone wants a sticker, we put them on our Instagram story, but let us know and we will just send you a sticker because we want everyone to have them. And they're really cute. Um, They are so freaking cute. I know. And we got business cards for Art Pop Talk. So we're like super official. Businesswoman special. Businesswoman special over here. I'm a businesswoman in town on business. (laughs) Regina Falange. (laughs) Could you imagine what if we put Regina Falange just like at the bottom of our business cards? Or we just start handing out businesswoman special cards that say Regina Falange. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah. I think we'll get there. We'll get there. If anyone is interested in that, let us know and we'll start making some. Amazing. Um, well, a little bit of news this morning before we get into it. Did you see the CBS Sunday morning special on the balconies? I did, and I think it's important for everyone to know that Gianna and I are obsessed with CBS this morning, and we grew up watching CBS Sunday morning And so I think every Sunday it's kind of in our nature to like get up and we watch Sunday morning and you hear like the trumpet sound and then it's so cute. Yeah. And then afterwards it was like Antiques Roadshow, Nature, Nova. Yes. Oh my gosh. There's just nothing more like pure, I feel like, than CBS Sunday morning. I know. Because like you said, like the trumpets and I love that. So their their logo is the sun mm-hmm. and that in between each like segment, they do different like drawings of the sun and yes. some are done by like professional artists or like kid artists. And then they take a moment to always show like nature scenes. Mm-hmm. And it's not that... Sunday morning doesn't have like hard hitting jur- journalism, but it's a really nice break and just like good, interesting stories. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I woke up this morning, of course, to hear the trumpet sound. And <laughs> so cute. they were doing this story on the balcony. And so they had one of their correspondents in Rome interview an art historian and this art historian was talking about the use of the balcony and she was saying you know kind of giving examples of these really famous balconies she said obviously the Pope's balcony in Vatican City and then she talked about the Queen's balcony how like royal figures wave and like speak to the people from balconies and then the correspondent was saying well there have also been some kind of problematic horrible figures from history who have spoken to the people from balconies and things like that. And then they were kind of juxtaposing this art historical and historical conversation about the balcony to how it's being used today in the midst of coronavirus. And so they had these violin and cello players. Yeah, so they are an American couple that both play in a prestigious orchestra. I'm not sure which one. I think it was the Nashville Philharmonic, Tennessee Philharmonic, somewhere in Tennessee. I think you're right. Um, But yeah, so they're they're, uh, American orchestra players, Mm -hmm. and they bought a place in Italy right before everything started to happen with coronavirus. And they really sparked that trend for people playing music on their balconies, using their balconies to interact with, you know, their neighbors, all that fun stuff. So it really caught on and they put on little concerts and then they're starting to like live stream it and Mm -hmm. they become pretty well known in their community. And 
it was just so cute and yeah they were just talking about like what what would you do like with your balcony like use it for goodness or like yeah <laughs> Hitler, use it for evil. evil I know right it was really fascinating to think about how artists are going to play off this idea of the balcony if we're going to see any either performance art from the balcony outside of kind of the musical realm or if we're going to start seeing different media portraying the balcony and like how in New York City people are like clapping pans and mm-hmm. giving thanks to healthcare workers from the balcony it's super interesting how a piece of architecture has transformed like that over time and it's finding different uses and now we're finding this use for it in the middle of a pandemic, Mm -hmm. which is fascinating. Yeah, it is really fascinating. It it was really interesting and I think just a good, like, wholesome story that we needed on this this Sunday. Yeah, so if you don't watch CBS Sunday Morning, that's a really big recommend from us. They always have really great stories from, like, exhibitions and curators and contemporary artists. They really do a lot of art coverage no so good and their music coverage is really good too they just had um nash from crosby stills and nash yes i'm forgetting his first name but he was adorable and he has been living in new york for about six years now and was living in hawaii for i guess the majority of his life and he was talking about how much he loved new york and his tour got put on hold and yeah it was just so great so cute he's adorable and I'm forgetting his first name, but yeah. it was a good story. And they always bring on Jim Gaffigan, too. Yes, Gianna, I noticed that. He was, like, pondering life, like, in the middle of the Sunday show. It's so funny. Uh, but, yeah, they, they love Jim Gaffigan, and, you know, so do I. So it all works out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So watch Sunday morning. So what are we talking about today, then? Alrighty. Well, so today we are going to talk about a curatorial project that both Bianca and I worked on at the OSU Museum of Art. This exhibition is called Little Nemo's Progress, Animation and Contemporary Art. Also, in the last half of our episode, we are going to be bringing on our first guest speaker, Miss Sid Hammond. We love her. We worked with Sid at the museum. She has a background in collections management, and she is also a self-taught graphic artist, and she did the graphics for our pop talk, so we're Mm -hmm. so excited to have her on the show, and we'll be getting into her take on the project and what uh, role she played in that. Yeah. So the goal in covering this exhibition is to give you all insight into what kind of work both Bianca and I did at the museum and what kind of work that we're interested in pursuing, Mm -hmm. but Also, to really give you all a better understanding of how museum operations work, because that's really going to be essential in moving forward when we talk about other curatorial projects or just other exhibitions, I think it's really important to understand how many people it really takes to put on shows like this and give you guys that that kind of insider knowledge. Yeah, and I also think that if you're someone who's interested in art or museums or galleries, There are so many different kinds of job opportunities that lie within the art world or a museum setting. So Gianna and I definitely want to kind of cover these different realms, like if you're in tech or chemistry or, you know, different science and engineering, there are so many different kinds of positions available. So Gianna and I definitely dealt a lot with that kind of tech side with with this show, which is fun. Yeah, for sure. So there's a lot that went into this project. Bianca took on a more curatorial role. I took on more of a programming role. And I think we'll just get into it. So Bianca, do you want to go ahead and start us off? Yeah, so I was a graduate research assistant at the OSUMA during my second year of grad school. The first semester, I was able to work in all these kind of different departments within the OSU Museum. So I worked with collections, education, marketing, exhibition design. I worked with the director a little bit to kind of think about administration or grant proposals, things like that. And then during the second semester, I was able to work with Dr. Moray Beauchamp-Bird, who was a visiting assistant professor of art history at Oklahoma State University at the time. I was in the 
program. So Murray specializes in the art of the African diaspora, including artists engaged with feminist theory and African-American cartoonists. And she looks at American art, 18th century British art, with a really fascinating emphasis on William Hogarth's graphic novels or graphic um, narratives. And she looks at modern and contemporary art, including contemporary British art with a focus on British artists of African, Asian, and Caribbean descent. So her range of specialty is really, really cool. So this project was really different from anything that I had worked on or seen at the OSU Museum of Art. Like I said, Murray has a background in studying animation, cartoons, graphic novels in this really particular kind of intersectional manner. So this project was to be kind of this all-encompassing timeline of the history of global animation art. And it focused on three kind of key components. So like we said, the title of the show was Little Nemo's Progress. And she wanted to start with this idea of Little Nemo, which was one of the first early examples of animation. It premiered in 1911 and it was drawn and kind of produced by a man named Windsor McKay. And so we constructed this timeline based off the premiere of Little Nemo that highlighted all these different key moments in animated innovation, which ended with the 2018 feature film Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. In the exhibition space, a detailed timeline had images of photographs, movie posters, DVD boxes, video game covers, which all were meant to illuminate the viewers on how animated works of art really have influenced popular culture, as well as technological advancements in the arts. That timeline was super essential to the exhibition. It really tied it all in together because it was also able to feature moments and works of art that wasn't featured in the works of art itself. And Sid was really instrumental in working on that timeline. Yeah. Not only creating it physically, but also doing a sway document. So a digital document people could follow along on an iPad. So the second component that Dr. Bouchant Bird wanted to emphasize was this focus on addressing the process of animation art. So how has the process of animation been executed differently over time? She worked with a lot of different technologies and she really wanted to include a diverse selection of not only artists themselves, but in their media. So she worked with Lyndon Barrois and Gabrielle Tesfe to acquire these kind of process items that showed how the artists have made their type of animation work. With Lyndon Barrois, for example, he uses gum wrappers and then essentially uses these tiny gum wrappers to create figures and engage with stop motion animation. And Gabrielle Tesfai used puppets and then created these puppets and animated them by hand. So according to Murray, these process items are essential to how the magic is made for her. And then the third component that's realized in the exhibition is the impact of animation and contemporary art on visual culture. So a variety of interactive contemporary works from Le Turbo Avedon, Daniel Kanegar, Daniel Rosen, Jennifer Steinkamp were all on view which created this really impressive and engaging space that kind of exemplifies the endless possibilities of animation in conjunction with the art world. These works also by contemporary artists were in partnership with the Toma Foundation, which I just wanted to highlight because they have a really incredible collection of digital artwork. And then after moving through this main kind of gallery space, engaging with this timeline and these three components, guests were encouraged to visit the museum's art lab, which Gianna will definitely talk about, to play video games and discuss the show in kind of further impact with other types of artistic technology. Yeah, the show was so layered in so many different ways. It yeah. was in the beginning, so extremely satisfying to bring such a complex, contemporary and relevant 
interactive exhibition to our institution. So it was really exciting. So you were there straight from the beginning as you were assigned to help Professor Bouchampert as an assistant student curator. Mm -hmm. So I really want you to walk us through what it was like being presented with that project from the beginning and what it was like helping to build it from the ground up. And I'm also interested in how long was Murray working on this project prior to bringing it to the museum and having the students involved in it? Yeah, well, I'm not sure I can speak to how long Marie had been envisioning this project. She had been in the department for a little over a year at that point, and I know that the museum likes to partner with the Department of Art and Art History to kind of let the art history and art faculty have some input or curatorial projects take place at the museum. And I also know that it was really important to the museum and to Murray to work with the Toma Foundation because, like I said, they have this really incredible collection of digital art. And because that was such kind of a natural partnership, but also something that hadn't been highlighted at the museum before, I know everyone really wanted to, had been wanting to work on those um, and that partnership for a while. So I started to work with Murray as the assistant curator and project manager just before the fall semester ended. And when she initially told me about the project, it was kind of so large scale that she had told me she wanted to bring in this team of students to work on it. And even though we eventually did bring a kind of team of students together, I met with Murray one-on-one quite a bit, at least once a week, one-on-one throughout the semester, if not more. We really flushed out kind of a lot of ideas together, and what I so appreciated from her was that even though this was her area of expertise and she knows so much about animation and Little Nemo and graphics, she really valued my input, which I just appreciated so much, you know, coming from this extremely intelligent professor coming to me and really valuing my opinion and how I visualize the exhibition was really cool. Yeah, she really, she really trusted me with her own research and her own work, which was a really like humbling experience curatorially. So I felt very excited and privileged to work with her. Yeah, she's an excellent curator. So as you mentioned out, the benefit and the amazing thing about having a university museum is that our art department can work so closely with the museum. So our professors have the opportunity to be external curators and then come in and present their ideas for a curatorial project. And then they have the ability to then bring on those interested students onto the project. Mm -hmm. So although the museum does have already a built-in student staff, they are not limited in providing opportunities for others that can be part of these larger up-and-coming projects. Mm -hmm. So this is great. But at the same time, that professor is also taking on the additional responsibility and the additional task of teaching these students how to function in this kind of group dynamic outside of the classroom. Mm -hmm. So on top of their own personal research, publications, teaching, I think Murray was teaching like three classes at least. As I really wasn't part of this group in the project, I more met one-on-one with Murray. So I want to know how was the student dynamics within the curatorial team? How did it go? what was this level of contribution and was it more or less difficult based on other projects you've worked on? Yeah, I'd say for me, this was the most difficult part of the project. It was really a new dynamic, even though I had some curatorial experience before this. I was either the leader on the project or it wasn't such a large team that I was in charge of. So as an undergrad, I worked at the museum as a museum associate, basically kind of like a docent doing little tours, you know, helping the staff around the museum with whatever. And then as I transitioned to a grad student, it was weird because I was at the same university, but now I was either working as a TA and then obviously in the second year I was a GRA. So it was a little weird kind of managing students that maybe I had been familiar with as a museum associate in the past where we were kind of on the same level or as a fellow classmate. 
So that transition was kind of difficult because now I was, I guess, their superior, if you wanted to call it that, and really had to stay on top of these students to get their work done and turn it in so the exhibition could be successful. It was definitely the most involved curatorial work I had done up to that point. Because I was starting at the very beginning of a new project, it was, yeah, it was different managing other people on top of my own work and wanting to bring Marais' research to light and things like that. So making everyone's ideas cohesive, and it's hard to kind of shut those ideas down whenever people are so passionate and so interested about this subject. And that's why Murray essentially brought them onto the team, but it's almost like too many cooks in the kitchen. And so I think that was a big learning curve for me was how do I tell them this just isn't going to work? Or, okay, you have all these great ideas, but now I really need you to hone in on one of them. And that was challenging. And it's funny because this exhibition was installed in the kind of summer fall transition after I graduated. So I had spent so much time working on this and kind of guiding people through it. And then when it was installed, I actually was essentially done with my part of it. And that's when Gianna actually was able to transition in. So I wanted to hear kind of about Gianna's perspective because it was really 180 from mine. Like mine was so kind of back end managing all this like data and collections that would be put together and be put on the walls. But once it was on the walls, I was, you know, gone off. Right. And it's funny because I was there that summer. I was working when they were installing the exhibition and that was a really crazy install. Um, I did not help with the installation, but just witnessing it, our We had our collections team, our preparator, just on hand all day, Mm -hmm. every day, especially dealing with the technological aspects of the exhibition. It was, at least as far as I worked there, the most tech-heavy show that we had had because essentially Mm -hmm. what we were showing were videos. Yeah, And and they also had different requirements. I know that whenever we were doing the research part, we had to communicate with the staff at the Toma Foundation mm-hmm. as well as the OSU Museum of Art staff because Toma had regulations for how it was to be played and how it was to be displayed and how many square feet you need to show the Jennifer Steinkamp piece. Exactly. And sometimes the museum didn't have all the technology ready. Like we had to order a lot of stuff to just display it properly. Yeah, and we there was this one interactive piece that essentially functioned as a mirror, Mm -hmm. and when you would walk in front of this oval-like screen, it would reflect your image in this very pictorial, fractured manner. So really cool, but it required this very specific projection Mm -hmm. because it had to be projected in this oval shape. Right. So really crazy tech stuff. So it was really cool to see all that, you know, behind the scenes stuff go on over Mm -hmm. the summer. But my involvement in the project really came much later as I did the educational programming for the exhibition, which that part was not new to me to give you all a brief overview of the usual kind of educational and developmental programming I plan for, for whatever exhibition that really normally includes things like tour plans or creating activity sheets or switching out all the resources in our art lab, which is our hands-on creative space within the museum. So this meant switching out toys and crafts and resources. And also, especially since the show was so tech heavy, putting on different programs onto our, our Macs in the art lab. So a lot of switching over and planning. And then also for one of our monthly programs called Second Saturday, again, that was usual for me, always planning uh, big activities for the day that would tie directly to the themes of the exhibition. Mm -hmm. But for Little Nemo, I was given the opportunity to be the visiting artist coordinator for the, or for two featured artists in the exhibition. So that's really... That's really where things started to happen. Yeah, so Gianna dealt with a lot. It should have taken more than one person to bring in two visiting artists, let alone a student staff member. So do you want to talk about that process? Yeah, so to start off with, 
not only were we dealing with that, you know, the crazy installations, dealing with all the tech stuff, we had a lot of turnover at the museum at that time as well. My boss had just moved and gone to a different institution and my other supervisor was on leave for a little bit. So and our preparator just had a baby. Our preparator had a baby. So our preparator <laughs> had to leave during the most insane tech show install that I think the museum had seen up to that point. It was crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, in a way, like, I'm I'm so proud of the team and how they pulled together. And that really proved to be such, you know, a crazy time, but also really great support supportive environment mm -hmm. but yeah like it was crazy town <laughs> for a it while it was crazy town it was crazy town so in both of my bosses being on leave I was working directly with the director of the museum at the beginning Victoria Berry and she in looking to give me a new project in in light of the situation mm -hmm. she was looking for someone to be the visiting artist coordinator for this grant in which we received money to do this visiting artist programming. So from that point on, I worked then directly with Victoria Berry and Dr. Bouchampard. And because there was a lot of grant money involved in this exhibition, it was a little bit different. It wasn't just like, oh, like, here's your money now. Like, you have fun. Like, you do you. Do whatever you normally do. There were a lot of requirements that I had to fulfill in order to meet the needs of this grant. Mm -hmm. So specifically, the most essential part was to have student engagement, right? which was really great and made a lot of sense. This was a university-based grant. So like, obviously, they want to give you money so you can, you know, enrich the lives of students in different and unique ways, which yeah. was great for me because at that time, I was specifically focusing on college and adult programming. So really in line with my vision, which was why I was given, you know, the opportunity to be on this project, mm -hmm. which was great. So I was working with Marae, having constant meetings with her, either like in person or over the phone. And I got an understanding of the logistics of really how grant works, which yeah. in the beginning was an amazing opportunity because I, I hadn't worked with grant or I hadn't written any grants up yeah. until that point. So being able to be in on that aspect of the planning at, as an undergraduate student was really special. Yeah, I think that's one of maybe the unfortunate downfalls of my program, undergrad and grad at OSU. I was not able to take a grant writing class from the art history department they just didn't offer one of those classes and we had talked about doing kind of an after hours grant writing session which would have been really helpful but it seemed like it just it never worked out so for an undergrad to be able to learn how grant writing in the arts works is really nice yeah it was great it's As, a lot. Oh, it's insane. Um, to be thrown into an actual grant instead of just learning about how they work and how the language works and the requirements. Absolutely. I mean, I'll kind of get into the timeline about how long, you know, I plan for each artist to come. But this was all I did for that semester. Right. I could not dedicate my time to anything else. Of course, I like work tours and special events like when it came up, but this was my project for that whole semester yeah. um, because it was really just me. Yeah. So do you want to talk about some of the events and how long it took to plan those and help them come to fruition? Yeah. So with meeting with Marae, it was a great starting point because I really got to understand what her vision was, what was required of the grant, and then we could use my perspective in finding the best way to then carry out these plans. Mm -hmm. As a employee at the museum and as a student, I think that my perspective was essentially very unique and important because I had that insider knowledge of, of how to engage these students. Right. So the artists were scheduled to arrive at different times over the course of the semester, I think for each artist at the longest, it was about two months of planning. So mm -hmm. that makes sense. I mean, it was roughly, if you think about that four months, like that 
pretty much takes up the whole semester. Right. Yeah, it was crazy. And mostly why it takes so long is because when you want to involve students in different and unique ways, that means that I had to plan for events both inside the museum and outside of the museum. And having more events in different locations just means more people that I solely had to coordinate with. Right. Hence, crazy town. <laughs> um, so, as an, on your own, like, on you, my it's own, it's not like you had like an assistant to help you with this stuff. No, <laughs> that would have been lovely. Right. No. So, of course, like I would get the green light from Murray and from the museum, and then I would take care of the rest of the communication. Mm-hmm. So, our first artist, Lyndon Barawa, he as Bianca mentioned, is a digital stop-motion animator. He specifically works with making uh, gum wrapper figures into stop-motion pieces. So he's a really interesting artist because he not only is practicing independently, but he also has a very prolific career in the film industry. He did the animation for the Matrix trilogy, uh, Happy Feet and Alvin and the Chipmunks. Yeah. And a number of other ones. Right. And I think when we met with him, he was starting to work on some other film mm-hmm. projects too. Yeah. Um, he is an absolute dear. We had so much fun working with him. He had such a positive energy about him, just so supportive towards the students. So um, he was a great choice on behalf of Murray and wanting to bring him in. Yeah. So for him, I planned three events. So we had first studio visit. So when he flew into Stillwater, that was the first thing that we did. And we took him around the art department, showed him the campus and mm-hmm. have him give these kind of mini lectures in the classroom to give students a taste of what they might get if they attend the official artist talk. So right. that was a way to entice them to come in to the reception, meet this artist, have some free food. Yeah. You know, all very good. So then, so like I said, after that, then we did a formal artist talk. And this was planned in conjunction with Little Nemo's exhibition. Mm-hmm. So this was really great, great way for all of our donors and other people affiliated with the museum to come in and meet Lyndon and engage in this dialogue with Murray and, and Lyndon in right. this artist talk. So that was great. And then the next day, we had a coffee with a curator and artist. This was a very more relaxed setting for professors and students to just come in and talk more on one, very chill. Mm-hmm. And we also had um, a student in the journalism department, I believe, come in and film Lyndon, give a brief artist talk again and film the conversations mm-hmm. happening. So, yeah, that was really great. So, essentially, three events over the course of two days. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a lot. You did so much for that show. Yeah. Thank you. You did a really, really good job. Yeah. Really good. Before we break and bring on Sid, I just wanted to, again, highlight the Toma Foundation. Carl and Marilyn Toma are OSU alumni, so... They really did a lot for the exhibition as well. Um, and meeting Lyndon was so lovely. Gianna and I were able to go to dinner with Lyndon, Murray, the Tomas, and some of the staff from the Toma Foundation. And it was just such a really lovely time. And I think Gianna and I enjoyed so much being able to come to this dinner and kind of get closure on the whole project. Like it was really such a reward to see the artists and the curator and the donors and the museum staff like come together and realize like how fulfilling it was oh. to to finalize this show and have everyone come and see it and get such positive feedback. Absolutely. When you are working on such an immense collaborative project and to finally get to meet these people that live in a different state, Mm -hmm. you know, we're borrowing their technology, we're borrowing their works of art and not really have been affiliated with that from the beginning, but just meeting those people face to face and having that physical understanding of how much it takes to make something like this, both from the curatorial side and both from a programming side. Yeah. And yeah, it was extremely fulfilling and the show was amazing. It really was such a fantastic show. I think it's one of the best that I've seen at the OSC Museum. It was a lot. I mean, it was a lot of work and there was a lot of, I think, tension putting all of that together. But in the end, for an academic museum like that to pull it off, I think... It was totally worth it. And the students loved it. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, again, when you're doing something so big, there are things that you plan for and they might not happen. Right. You know, case in point, I was supposed to do another event for our second artist, Gabrielle Testify, and I had done all the planning and programming mm-hmm. for her and was ready ready for her to come, had all of it done. That was the last half of the semester. And then she ended up not being able to attend. Mm-hmm. And you know, that is just kind of the deal with event planning. Yeah. You know, in this situation, 50% of what I had worked on didn't end up coming to fruition. And that is just kind of the name of the game. Right. I think that also happened with the curatorial team. I mean, we had so many ideas and we presented a plethora of ideas and layouts. And there were originally supposed to be a lot more works in the show. And then Mm -hmm. again, when the Thomas got back to us and said, we actually have these kind of dimensional limitations to the piece. We can't show two pieces right next to each other or these two pieces have to be separated by a wall or this piece needs actually a microphone or a different kind of sound system. We realized like, okay, half of this has to be thrown out the window because we have to cut the show in half basically. Right. But in the end, I couldn't believe when I walked in for the first time, I couldn't believe that all that work was like actually on the walls you know it actually worked (laughs) right well and with Gabrielle's piece as well she is also stop motion artist who wrote um wrote created a piece about the middle passage Mm -hmm. and we did so many hands-on projects at the Prairie Arts Center making our own puppets and stop-motion figures. I had so many wonderful conversations with elementary and middle school kids about slavery and the Middle Passage. So such in-depth and insightful conversations that Mm -hmm. you can't always get in a classroom setting. Right. And so it would have been amazing for her to come, but her work just proved to be so fulfilling to talk about in yeah. tours, and it really got the community excited about it. And yeah. so, you know, that it didn't work, out. and it all worked out, mm-hmm. yeah. and it was great. All right. Well, I think we are going to go ahead and take a little break, and when we come back, we are going to have our first guest, Sid Hammond, on the show. So stay with us. Hello, everyone, and welcome back. We are here with the lovely Sid Hammond. Sid, how are you? I'm pretty good. How are you guys doing? We miss you. I miss you, too. (laughs) I know. I feel like we've been able to talk to you for a while, but I haven't, like, seen you in person in so long. Yeah, it's painful. I don't like it. (laughs) How is Stillwater? That's where you are, right? Yes. Stillwater is pretty good. It's pretty dead. Um, okay. it's yeah, all the college kids are gone. So that's nice, but it's mm-hmm. still crazy running around. Yeah. Um, there was like a national news article, right? About. Yeah. Gun water within 24 hours of the mayor, um, having a decree to enforce all masks wearing in every retailer and in Walmart and any grocery store, there was gun violence threatened within one day. And so then they had to completely revoke it the next day. Wow. Go Pugs. Yeah. Go Stillwater. Yikes. I'm so sad to be leaving. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're safe and I'm glad that you're still able to work and working from home and things like that. So, well, before we kind of get into things, do we want to tell everyone how the three of us met? Sure. I think, Gianna, you met Sid before I did. Yeah, well, actually, Sid, you and I met even... Before the museum, we had our 3D foundations class together. We didn't even meet in the class, technically. We met on the bus leaving the class. Oh, yeah. That's cute. Because I I recognized you, and I sat next to you and was asking about you. And then we found out that we were both from Edmond, and that you just went to a different high school, and that we had mutual friends, and it just kicked off from there. Yeah, and then you couldn't get rid of me from there. (laughs) 
And Sid, I don't remember the first time you and I met. I feel like I, I knew who you were for a while. Oh my god, I was so intimidated by you for the longest time. Really? <laughs> you can be intimidating. No, you walked in no. and you had this air of like, I own the place. And that was it. And I, I always wanted to talk to you. So I'm like, oh, it's Gianna's sister. She sounds cool. And then I would make eye contact. Like, I can't talk to her. <laughs> you what? just have like, bitch boss, like all the time. Wow. But like in a good, like empowering way. Well, I don't want to be scary. <laughs> because no, it's I'm more like Doja Cat's now. boss bitch is like playing in the background when yeah. you walk in. <laughs> I'm dead. That's amazing. Well, I'm glad that, like, we are friends now and you're not scared to talk to me. Yeah, no, I know you guys are both just huge dorks now, so it's fine. (laughs) (laughs) It'll blow our cover. Thank God, thank God. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. So, Sid, do you want to talk a little bit about your kind of background in the arts, what you did at OSU, and how that kind of fed into your involvement with the Museum of Art and then eventually into the Little Nemo project? Yeah, so um, I have been an artist. I like to say that I've been an artist since I could hold a crayon, and um, I've never really been like classically trained, if you want to call it that. Um, I did art all through high school. I did AP art. Um, and then I got to OSU and I wanted to minor in art and I majored in entrepreneurship because Mm -hmm. I do a lot of freelance. I do, um, self-employed art. Uh, I know you guys stated it, but so the listeners know I did all the graphics for art pop talk and I've done graphics. Yeah. I've done graphics for other things as well. I did graphics for, um, a local like high school and middle school band. And right now I do a lot of, um, digital character design, and it's kind of cool to talk to you guys about art in the context of my experience, which is very self-taught and not really um, academic until I got to college. And then you right. guys have always had this more fine art uh, education since you guys were kids. So it's really yeah. cool to kind of blend those two areas. Yeah, definitely. We're so glad that you were able to do our logo. I think that's kind of also like you are the perfect person to have do that because we do want to mix that kind of graphic sense with that David classical kind of art history figure. Well, thank you. (laughs) No, we love our logo. It's literally it's just it's so on brand I just (laughs) love it even before we knew like what we were doing like when you did the little like sketch you like dropped in the photo of David and then like you just did a quick sketch of me and Bianca's like faces like next to it and we just immediately were like it's like shook like that was it done deal take my money I know like it was (laughs) truly truly okay so Sid can you talk about your relationship with the museum what your position was when you first started working and kind of your evolution of you know you've had a lot of different positions there so it was um quite an experience so I didn't know that the OSU Museum of Art existed until I met you Gianna and then you explained that you had worked there and you kept telling me I think for like an entire semester and maybe a semester and a half to apply and I finally oh did I was like bitch please apply I need you to work with me <laughs> <laughs> I finally did and I started um working as just the museum associate so I was just one of the standard student workers guarded galleries talked to visitors um I moved up to be a student supervisor which came with a little bit more responsibility and then that's when you and I started working a little closer Um, with planning and events and stuff. And then in between there, and while we started work on Little Nemo, I transitioned into having a second position as collections intern. So I worked front of the house and back of the house. So I worked with our two collections professionals and I, what's the word that I want to use? I guess cataloged um, a lot of previously organized stuff in the collection with um, our database and I handled artwork. I like helped make sure it was um, up to par for cleanliness, for standard of keeping it like consistently. Um, oh gosh, I can't remember the word. I don't really archival. remember exactly. Like archi- yeah, to an archival standard, so it wasn't damaged, it wasn't deteriorating. And it's 
a relatively small collection, but for the size of our institution, it's pretty impressive because the OSUMA is very tiny compared to um, other museums. And to have a collection of, I think it's 5,000 or more objects is really, really cool. So how did you originally like get in contact with Murray about working on the Little Nemo project? So Murray is so funny. And I was taking one of her <laughs> art history classes. I think it was just like survey two. So it was one of the uh-huh. intro ones. And she, at the end of class one day, she just kind of looked up at everybody and went, oh, by the way, does anybody here like video games and video game art? And if you do, can you just come down here for a second? And so <laughs> three of us walked up. It was me and two guys. And only one of them was actually super interested in in starting it up. And so she just said, okay, well, we're doing um, an exhibition pretty soon and I want to hear your guys' ideas and I want to see what you think about like specific kinds of art styles used in video games because I think it could be included. And that was it. She did not say anything else about what we were getting into. She asked if we could have a couple meetings. And so we met in her office like once during that semester and then once in the summer and from there, she just immediately launched into, okay, so this is what we're going to do. And I'm going to get you guys emails and I'm going to send you all of this. And then this is what the research is. But I didn't hear what the exhibition was until we started getting in contact with you, Bianca. And then we yeah. were setting everything up. So I was just kind of picked up and thrown in the deep end. <laughs> <laughs> and I about felt right. like... Yeah, I felt like I could not back out. I didn't want to, but it was still like, oh, I don't I don't know exactly how I got here, but I guess I'm seeing it through. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I'm so thankful that you were on the project because I can't tell you enough how much I appreciate the statement. I'm going to see it through <laughs> because we we had at least one student who I never heard from again just stop showing up to meetings and And he was the guy that came up with me and he seemed so interested and then he tried to take over for a few times and all of us just kind of made eye contact like we're on the office and then we're like nope and he just stopped appearing (laughs) (laughs) I am pretty impressed and I feel so happy that the end team was a group of women who really and the majority of the OSUMA staff are women And for our kind of little curatorial team to be women working on this intense like tech and video game heavy project is really cool. So I'm glad that you were part of that group that Murray originally picked to talk about video games. Oh, thanks. I'm also really glad that I could represent um, women in video games and in more of like a non-traditional sense of art because that kind of style of art is so heavily male dominated and even to the base of who buys it and who consumes it and who discusses it is mostly male. I mean, I have a, a group of friends that we talk about video games literally every day and right. I'm the only woman in the whole group and I adore these guys and they're wonderful people, but it's still very jarring to think like oh I'm the one that did all the research for the show yet everything is still pretty much catered towards a male audience so it was really nice and kind of like a haha gotcha moment whenever everything premiered that we could say we were a team of women and we put this together and it's just as accurate as compared to if a a group of guys did it that had been in the same situation Yeah. yeah So with that in mind, we wanted to ask what you found the most difficult part of the project to be. I think it was really interesting in you coming in on the project. I mean, me and Bianca have talked about it. We aren't big gamers. We didn't really grow up with video games. It hasn't really been a big part of like our lives. And so when I heard that we were going to do an exhibition about video games I really didn't know what to expect and then because we were so close you had given me all this like really just interesting insider information on oh this video game you would really like because it's done in this more artistic way or like because of the characters and so I'm just I'm curious about what you thought was like difficult or successful and I just think you're amazing (laughs) (laughs) Well, you guys are amazing. Um, I would say that, I guess to kind of give a full overview of what my part really was, because Murray did kind of shove 
the umbrella term of video games and animated art onto me. And we yeah. were a team of what five people yeah. total. So what I did in the beginning was I researched one, the technological history of video games and two, the artistic history, because you can't discuss one without the other because mm-hmm. it started with pong, literally just a ball and two boxes going across a black screen. You can't do anything artistic with that if you don't have the technological advances. So I, for a to keep it brief, started with like basics, which was vector and um, really old school, like 70s, early 80s stuff. I moved mm-hmm. into pixels, which is kind of where we started, where whenever we were really small, that was fading out, but was really popular. And mm-hmm. then into polygons. So polygons are what you see in like Pixar and Disney movies and stuff, where it's all three dimensional. And the more polygons that you have, the more realistic it tends to be. Mm-hmm. So I did all the research for that and then had to boil down these concepts into very colloquial terms to people who are obsessed with like oil paintings (laughs) to to understand the digital aspect of it, which was fun and challenging, but it was still a little strange to kind of bridge that gap of art because in video games and animated media, there are their own art movements. Um, And like Gianna was saying with recommending like, oh, I think you would like this game because of this. There are such a breadth of genres and ways to play games that so many people don't realize truly is its own art movement. One of my favorite examples, which we talked about in the show, was the video game Journey. And it's set with there's absolutely no violence. You cannot hit anything. You can't pick up anything. The Mm -hmm. only thing you can do is move around and you can jump and like make a little noise. And that's to signal to other people that are playing, oh, here I am. You can't say any words. It's just one noise. Mm -hmm. And the whole point of the game is to get from point A to point B and you start in the desert and you go to a mountaintop. And there's no like, the character's only humanoid. So you can completely project yourself onto this character as you move through this beautiful world and interact with all these really cool things. And it only takes you maybe an hour to get through the whole thing. Right. Think of video games, you wouldn't think of something like that. So that's where my role was in the exhibition was to make sure that that part of video games was communicated as well as the more traditional, I guess, um, beloved games that we'd seen really, really um, contribute to more modern concepts of media. So more modern concepts of like TV and movies and uh, moving towards like, I don't want to use the word pop art, but kind of pop art. Yeah. How like there's such a booming online um, community of artists now that are classically trained and are fine artists, but are now moving and gravitating towards something different and towards a more animated medium. And so that was my whole jam during this was how do I boil (laughs) down 50 years worth of animated art into just a few pieces? Right. How did you find the process from doing research and then transferring that into the museum setting? Because I feel like we had approved of certain video games that we wanted to display and that we wanted to kind of have labels for, but there were a lot of back and forth ideas in the beginning, how that could even work. Like how does a video game get properly displayed and discussed inside of a gallery? Yeah, that was probably the most challenging part of all of my research and of um, making those decisions of what do we want to truly showcase? Because there is that double-edged sword in video games of the majority of them do have some sort of violence component. Mm -hmm. That doesn't always mean it's negative, but it does mean that it's not appropriate for all audiences. So for us in a state-sanctioned school related museum it was really difficult to make sure that that was communicated that like we're not trying to compare this to the gameplay aspect as much as we are the beauty aspect and the process in which it was created so I think our final ones that we went with which it's been a year so (laughs) I'm sorry (laughs) if I forget 
Um, we went with uh, The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time, which is 22 years old now, and it's regarded as like the best video game of all time. And at the time, it was extremely technologically advanced, but it's also kind of heavily rooted in this fantastical storyline um, that is beloved by, I want to say, three generations at this point, because they're still making uh-huh. games for that. And so it's more of the the narrative that was the beauty aspect and that you were completely emerged in this giant world of it. But then I wanted to showcase the artistic creative side. So we had the interactive Minecraft exhibit. And when you say that, it sounds really dumb. <laughs> <laughs> But it was a really cool aspect that we were able to plop down a hand-built arcade cabinet with Minecraft accessible to all ages in the middle of what is usually a contemporary and fine art museum. Right. So, And it was a way to kind of um, communicate multiple generations and get them involved in the museum itself because that was our main goal is we wanted students and younger audiences to feel welcomed in it. And so that was the one thing that I was really, really pushing for. And then there came the backlash of, well, what else do we showcase? And right. it became the the battle of, well, I like this game, so let's include it. But does it have the artistic value? Does it have um, the basis of what we're wanting to truly talk about in everything that we're discussing with animated art over time? Um, so that was the the hardest part of it, I think, is that a lot of bias comes into it. And I know that was a point of contention for our team. And I remember there was a day where you kind of looked at me, Bianca, because you were <laughs> completely lost that one of the girls and I were going back and forth and saying, oh, it should be this one. Oh, but no, it has too much violence. But it was voted best game of the year this year. But it didn't run on a new engine. So the <laughs> visuals weren't better. And Bianca Rich is like, just pick one. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, I think really similar to like what you guys do in your podcast as well is that you're talking about art in the context of how everyone can understand it and for other people like to me all of that makes sense that I had that conversation that we had but to you guys that was just over your heads (laughs) immediately and the opposite is also true so I I think that was what really drew me in and kept me on the project and what forced me to kind of make those really difficult decisions on what are we actually going to talk about and what do I want the public to know about video games and in the context of um, actual artistically moving forward. Because I know we had, I don't, I think you, I guess you guys have probably already talked about it, but the chronology, the whole timeline that we all worked on. Yeah. And once we got that up on the wall to see from like the late 1800s all the way to 2018 whenever we were talking about into the spider-verse from its just from its pure um, animated potential that's insane and of course you have to bring in the interactive element of the video games of, uh, in and of itself I'm ranting at this point I don't even know if that answered your question but no, I yeah absolutely did I mean I think you taught me so much about this other world that feels like I should know something about like I'm involved in visual culture but growing up it I think part of why I felt like I was missing out on this conversation because it was partly so nostalgic like you were talking about earlier and that kind of connection and that like deep rooted passion in video games I had for kind of something else like the movies we were talking about in the timeline or whatever it didn't come from that gaming perspective but I mean it opened my eyes so much and I think that you did such a great job Gianna and I were kind of talking about this earlier that decision making process can be so hard when you are passionate about something yeah I think that's like I had mentioned with the several point of contentions whenever we were having our (laughs) meetings also, it was eight o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so they were like, early. They were early meetings. <laughs> whole deal, but yeah, whenever you bring that much passion into it, it does completely change the game. And for me personally, um, I've played video games since I was seven years old. I still have my original console. I still have all my original games. Um, I literally have been building a computer which is what I was doing this morning trying to fix it so that I can play more games and (laughs) that's also what's kind of shaped this whole other generation of artists which is 
what really we tied into as best as we could at the time into the exhibition that you're not hearing about animation and you're not hearing about animators and what goes into that and what kind of skills it takes when you go through a more classically trained program like OSU's studio art and fine art programs. Mm-hmm. And sure, there's graphic design, but even then that's not focused in the same respect that we were trying to talk about. Right. So that that passion aspect is definitely um, a driving force and then also a force that holds you back whenever it comes to a, a concept like that. Yeah. Um, well, Sid, you are just a queen and thank you for shedding light on the world of video games, giving us insight into a new perspective that otherwise we were oblivious to. So I know I could literally listen to you just talk for hours about so many things that I just don't know. It's <laughs> no, she's incredible. And speaking of how incredible you are, Sid, where can people find you? Where can they view your work or get in contact with you, get commissions from you, all that stuff? Um, so I am active on Instagram and Twitter most often. My handle is at nebula underscore inky. Um, there's a whole story behind that, but that's, that's just my brand. (laughs) So I post all my artwork, um, on Instagram first, and then I, uh, discuss artwork and I post my own and share other artwork on, um, Instagram. And if the best way to find for commission info is through Instagram DMS. Um, I also have a, uh, coffee K O F I and a Patreon. They're not very active at the moment, but they're about to be, um, kicked off pretty hard, especially during quarantine. So it's, it's all under the brand of Nebula underscore Inky. Awesome. You okay. can find Sid on our featured artist page on our website, and we will also be highlighting her and tagging her on our Instagram as well, so you can find all her handles there. Sid, thank you so much for being here. I hope we get to talk to you again, and more importantly, I hope I get to see you in the <laughs> flesh sometime soon. I would love that. If yeah, you definitely. Really well, thanks for letting me hop on and talk to you guys about everything. Um, my door is always open, so come see me. Okay. Well, we will. <laughs> Careful what you wish for. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that wraps up this week's episode. Um, don't forget, you can email us with any questions. If you have any questions for Sid, we can definitely pass those along as well artpoptalk at gmail.com. Don't forget, we're on Apple Podcasts. Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere you get your podcasts. And we will talk to you guys on Tuesday. Bye, everyone.